You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. I'm knee-deep into writing season three, but uh, something's been bugging me about the last episode. Let's talk about sex, comma, babies. Something that, frankly, I got wrong. Or if not wrong, at least incomplete. And incomplete in a way that uh, just won't do. It isn't okay. No, it's it's not an incompleteness. It's a glossing over, a whitewashing, and I'm, I'm embarrassed by it. I started working on a correction, but it didn't feel like enough, so instead, here's something more like a full story. This week's episode, Lord Morton's Mare. The white men of Africa were losing sleep. The white men of England, of Holland, of France, who traded in plundered resources and chattel slavery. The white men of the Dutch East India Company, of the Royal Africa Company, who sought to ramshackle civilizations and drew centuries-long scars across the world. It wasn't their consciences that kept them awake, though it should have been. They had ideologies to beat back any sense of guilt or morality. Religious systems, scientific systems, authorities of all coats and stripes and collars to justify the taking of property, the taking of liberty, the taking of lives. They were not absolved of wrongdoing, no. It was much more affirmative than that. They were heralded for the good they did, for their countries, their economies, their God. Even for the Africans themselves, who were in need of saving, civilizing, redeeming, by crook. Their consciences weren't just clear, they were shiny. Still, the white men of Africa were losing sleep. It started with the bite of the tsetse fly, then itchiness, fever, headache. The sleeplessness set in a month or two later, along with confusion, lack of coordination, Then, later than that, death. Six months after the bite, maybe a year, never much longer. Sleeping sickness. A teeny, tiny parasite, carried by the tsetse fly, was doing the one thing that conscience, Western science, and Christianity could not. Slowing the selling of human flesh. It wasn't just the would-be colonists who were affected. It was also their horses. 
Animal sleeping sickness, or Nagana, was much more common than its human counterpart, and that meant expeditions into the Congo were usually ground to a halt. That couldn't be tolerated. There was business to be done, souls to be saved, progress to be spread. In the early 1800s, George Douglas, the Earl of Morton, thought up a solution. He noticed that the native equines of Africa, zebra and quagga, did not seem to be susceptible to the sickness. Maybe the white men of Africa could trade in their horses for their striped cousins. But zebra and quagga were too stubborn, wild, prone to biting, to be tamed. George Douglas's idea was to breed one of his horses with a quagga, which look like slightly smaller zebras with brown instead of black stripes that start at the head but fade to solid chestnut toward their hindquarters, like a zebra slowly becoming a domestic horse from front to back. The hope was that their hybrid offspring might have the father's resistance to the disease along with the mother's domesticity. But it didn't work out that way. Instead, the animal produced was as mean and unwieldy as its papa, and Morton gave up. A few years later, he sold the chestnut mare he had used as brood in his short-lived experiment to a friend, Sir Gore Osley, who wanted to cross her with his black Arabian stud. When the first foal was born, Osley and Morton were taken aback. It had stripes. Stripes up and down its legs, and a short, straight mane that stood straight up. Like a zebra. Like a quagga. Like the quagga, with which she'd been bred years before. Morton wrote the Royal Society of London to inform them of what he'd seen, what he called a singular fact in natural history. The Royal Society was astonished. They printed his letter in the prominent journal Philosophical Transactions. And just like that, an idea that had long slumbered in the corners of folk myth and superstition returned to the hideous four. Telegeny. In our last episode, I talked about telegeny for about 10 seconds, and rather effusively. Telegeny is the blanket term for the belief that multiple males can contribute material to a baby. I said that in some cultures, this meant that a pregnant woman would be urged to have sex with a lot of partners so that the fetus in her womb might gain the best traits from as many males as possible. And that's, that's true. This specific version of telegeny is usually called partible paternity, and it's common in polyandric cultures where a child can have one mother but a whole bunch of fathers. The idea is usually ascribed to cultures in the Amazon and Venezuela but it also existed in pre-colonial Hawaii and among pre-Christian Celts in England. But that is not what telegeny most commonly means. And it's certainly not what most people who know the term think of when it's brought up. Cultures all around the world have history with different telegenic ideas. But the one we need to talk about, the one that Lord Morton's mare brought roaring back to life, goes back to ancient Greece. Telegeny is all over Greek mythology. Take Theseus, for example, one of the great heroes, up there with Hercules, Achilles, Odysseus. Theseus, who bested the labyrinth, killed the Minotaur, founded the city of Athens. Theseus's conception was Greek telegeny exemplified. Aegis was childless, so he went to the Oracle of Delphi, seeking advice for how to sustain his lineage. The Oracle told him, 
do not loosen the bulging mouth of the wineskin until you have reached the heights of Athens, lest you die of grief. Great. Thanks a lot. You've been a real help, Aegis replied and went away frustrated. But when he told his friend Piteus his cryptic prophecy, Piteus thought he knew exactly what it meant. He had to get Aegis to drunkenly sleep with his daughter, Athra. Which, lo and behold, was precisely what the oracle had meant, somehow. Am I missing it? Am I stupid? Do you get it? Whatever. After copulating, Aegis fell into a drunken sleep, and Athra waded out to a nearby island, where Poseidon appeared and had his way with her too. So the story goes, Theseus was the child of both these couplings. Theseus had two daddies, King Aegis and Poseidon, god of the sea. Legends to this effect are rife in Greek mythology, because most Greeks didn't think mothers contributed to the creation of babies. Many of the half-divine demigods were conceived roughly as Theseus was. Just how widespread or seriously telegeny was taken by the ancient Greeks beyond their myths is hard to say. But in the 3rd century BC, the idea was laid down formally, codified as scientific thought by, you guessed it, Aristotle. It's through Aristotle that telegeny became common knowledge throughout the Western world. Throughout European history, Aristotle's notion of telegeny held sway. But unlike in the example cited in our last episode, the telegeny of medieval Europe was not a fun way for pregnant women to have more sex. Far from it. Instead, telegeny, or the sire effect, was held up as the paramount reason to value female virginity and shun all impure women. If previous male sexual partners played a part in future babies, then any woman who had been deflowered couldn't provide a man with children of his own, strictly speaking. Even widows, having mourned properly for years first, were undesirable because any new husband might find himself posthumously cuckolded by the old. That is some good misogyny, huh? That is male insecurity taken to a spectacular level, right? I should be clear, there's obviously something else going on around the cult of female virginity, the members of which appear to include most men in history. I don't know what that thing is, exactly. A more generalized insecurity, perhaps a fear of suffering by comparison? I don't know. Patriarchy is a rich tapestry, but telegeny certainly formed one of its main threads for hundreds of years, everywhere from England to China to India. Up through the 1500s, telegeny was held as scientific fact, such that there was such a thing as scientific fact before the 1500s. Mostly, the idea that previous males might impact future pregnancies was a royal concern. A king who married a fallen woman might be polluting the patriarchal bloodline forever. Patriarchal! See, it's right there in the name. From the 1500s on, as we know, a great number of misguided theories for where babies come from prevailed, and while each of them was wrong in various and sundry ways, they all had at least one thing in common. None of them had room for telegeny. The common people still held on to the idea to some degree, but for the scientific community, telegeny was confined to the dustbin. And then came Lord Morton's mare. The brown chestnut was bred twice by Lord Osley's black Arabian, and both foals came out striped, zebra quaggad. In 1820, 
Telegeny leapt back into scientific consciousness with a vengeance. No one knew why or how, but there it was. Indisputable proof that previous male sexual partners influenced future conceptions. Schopenhauer was convinced. Darwin was convinced. Everybody, more or less, was convinced. And however bad the old telegeny was, the new one was way worse, because it had a special, newfangled ingredient. 19th century racism. In South Africa, telegeny was submitted as evidence for why apartheid was necessary. In Germany, telegeny became part of the ideology of Aryanism. And in America, telegeny was held up as a rationale for anti-misogenation laws and figured into the southern one-drop rule of racial purity. In all of these instances, the specifics may have been different, but the general schema was the same. A superior white woman who had sex with an inferior male could never have white babies again. In his experiment, Lord Morton set out to find a better way for white men to subjugate Africans. And in a roundabout way, more terrible even than he intended, it worked. Credit Gregor Mendel and his peas, which gave us the laws of heredity for helping us shed this disgusting idea as well as we have managed to shed it. Along with Mendel, there was James Ewart, who bred zebras and horses to prove Lord Morton wrong. But this idea is too useful to bigots to ever be shed entirely. By the 1870s, we knew enough about heredity to entirely and finally discredit telegeny once and for all. And that didn't stop it from playing a part in the Nazi regime, nor Jim Crow. Telegenic racism is still alive and well in some white nationalist circles today. It pops up among supporters of abstinence education, too. In 2014, a Russian paper reported that the Russian Orthodox Church was teaching students a new brand of telegeny. This time, they said that whoever a woman's first partner is, from then until the end of time, he is the one and only father of any children she bears. Telegeny is pseudoscience. And pseudoscience is almost invariably used to hurt people. And usually, you can figure out who it's meant to hurt in two or three guesses. So that's why I wanted to correct the record. I didn't want anyone listening to this show and walking off into the world thinking that it was cute or a frivolous idea. It's not. It's an evil one. But what about Lord Morton's mare? Telegeny is hokum, so how did she give birth to striped folds? Who knows? We don't have any physical evidence of the striped folds. No photographs, no taxidermy. We only have Lord Morton's word. So it's possible, though unlikely, that he simply lied. Or else he fell prey to a wicked case of confirmation bias, seeing what he expected to see, where nothing, or nothing much at least, was there at all. But probably what Lord Morton saw was evidence of recessive genes which wouldn't be discovered until 40 years later by Mendel. Many breeds of horse can display striping, including Duns and Przewalskis. So, more likely than not, Morton's mare and Sir Osley's stallion both had recessive stripe alleles which expressed in their young. And 
Then there's one last long-shot explanation. Maybe. Just maybe. There was something special about the Quagga themselves. I, I don't know what it could have been. Almost certainly nothing. But while I can think of no conceivable method of action for what would have made the Quagga unique, it's a premise that, strictly speaking, we can't entirely rule out. You see, the last Quagga died in an Amsterdam zoo in May of 1867. The white men of Africa had hunted them to extinction. We'll be back in June for season three. Until then, from the city on the make, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant. <laughs>